episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro is currently offering premium neuro health coaching in which we discuss uh, targeted supplementation, nootropics, nutrition, uh, sleep hygiene, exercise, and more uh, based on the latest neuroscience-backed research. So if you're interested in improving your cognition, go ahead and check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com book a free 15-minute coaching consultation today to see if Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro coaching is for you. Onto the show today, uh, we have a very special guest, a gentleman that I've I've known about for a while and am very excited to be finally uh, talking to and interviewing uh, Dr. James Hart. Dr. Hart serves as the president and founder of the BioCybernaut Institute. He holds a Bachelor of Science Uh, in physics from the Carnegie Institute of Technology, a master's degree in psychology from Carnegie Mellon University, and a PhD in psychology from the Carnegie Mellon University. And he's done postdoctoral work in psychophysiology at the Langley Porter Neuropsychiatric Institute at the University of California at San Francisco. Dr. Hart has authored or co-authored more than 60 papers and professional presentations. He's authored, co-authored, or is pending over 30 patents for the core technology, headset, training methodology, and brain-centered portion of virtual reality applications. He's dedicated his life uh, to the research and development surrounding brainwave training. So Dr. Hart, super excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Toby, happy to be here. So tell me kind of just how did you even originally hear about an EEG how did you originally even stumble into this kind of very niche world of, of neurohacking? Well, there was no neurohacking. It wasn't even known when uh, I was a senior at Carnegie Institute of Technology in my fall semester of uh, physics. And I came out of uh, the student union after lunch and was confronted by a very large, colorful, hand-painted sign where every letter was a slightly different color. And it said, Dr. Joe Camilla will speak on brainwaves and consciousness. And it gave it time. And it was just, you know, 10 minutes away. And the building was right over here, Margaret Morrison College, right across the tennis court. And uh, I didn't have a class, so I went. Uh, I was the only one from the engineering college there, all the other attendees were students of the woman painting and design professor uh, who uh, Joe had stopped in to visit. And um, I was fascinated. I had been, because of a friend at Duquesne University, also in Pittsburgh, I had been exposed to the writings of uh, Father uh, Lewis Merton. And uh, I was reading The Phenomenon of Man uh, uh, by uh, another French author, Father Pierre Thierre de Chardin. And uh, I was uh, uh, excited by all of this philosophical stuff and phenomenology. But um, as an engineering student, a physics major, uh, a math whiz, I, I like, how do you measure this stuff? 
some words sound great, but all of a sudden here's Joe Camilla talking about brain waves and alpha brain waves and the fact that he had discovered a few years earlier that humans could, if given appropriate feedback, learn to voluntarily control their own alpha brain waves. Well, this was revolutionary because nobody had ever tried to do feedback on brain waves. They thought they were autonomic function and incapable of voluntary control. But here is this Japanese American researcher who as a little boy was actually in an internment camp in California during World War II. The Japanese were rounded up and put into basically concentration camps because they were considered a security risk. And so he had kind of accidentally stumbled on this. And uh, I was fascinated. I uh, began a correspondence with him. And meanwhile, every spare minute, I went to the library and found and read everything I could find on brainwaves. I exhausted uh, uh, my nickel supply every day, uh, Xeroxing uh, articles going back into the first publication. Brainwaves were discovered, alpha brainwaves were discovered in 1908 by uh, her doctor, Dr. Hans Berger, an Austrian psychiatrist, who was actually looking for the basis of ESP because of a cool experience that he had had when he was in one of those interminable wars uh, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire fighting uh, Muslims in the Crimea and his horse was shot and fell on him and broke his leg and he spent long months in a military hospital. When he got back to Vienna, called the family together to recount what had happened. Of course, there being no cell phones or emails to tell folks what was going on. He was halfway through a story and his sister uh, pulled him away, took him to her bedroom, showed him her Tagebuch, her diary, in which she had written everything that he had said. So she was obviously telepathic or psychic. And so he now believed in this and went looking using a very primitive form of technology. And the first waves he found were they called alpha because they were first. They're not the fastest and they're not the slowest, but they're the biggest, which is why he found them first. So his first, he kept it a secret for 10 years, finally published in 1918. And I actually got that original paper in German and with a dictionary. And a lot of time I actually read that first paper in German. So then I go through the fall and spring semesters, I graduate and I, with a degree in physics and I jump on my Triumph motorcycle and I ride up into Canada, across the Trans-Canadian Highway, down I-5 to San Francisco, and I report at Joe's lab, and I volunteer for uh, experiment. Very primitive. Uh, he had a dilapidated house at the edge of campus. A bedroom uh, was filled with a large digital equipment corp, PDP-15 mini computer, mini, I mean, it was like, gigantic. Um, and the chamber, the feedback chamber was a bedroom off, uh, was a closet off the bedroom lined with sound tiles uh, with a, a hard wooden chair upright, uh, a Nixie tube display with three digits uh, to give digital feedback once every two minutes. And in the corner on an, of the closet on an orange crate sat a large one foot speaker with torn speaker paper. And that was the feedback chamber. And it was the most fascinating thing I had ever done in my life. Uh, there would be a surge in tones and my rational mind would go, rrr, 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 how, what was that? How did I do it? How can I keep it going? And of course the tone would recede and I'd settle back and you know, my mind would quiet and the tone would come again. And my rational mind, as it had been so trained to do 
through all those years of education, would go, rrr, rrr, rrr. how did I do that? How can I keep it going? Rrr, rrr. And it would recede. And so over time, I learned to like put a leash on that aspect of my mind. And when the tone would come on, it would want to go like that, but I would like restrain it for a half a second or with practice a full second or two seconds, which meant the tone, the alpha could get bigger and bigger. And I had three days of that in a row. It was fascinating. And I went back on the fourth day, very eager to have more, but they weren't doing any studies. So I uh, had I'd become friends with Joe's San Francisco girlfriend, Joanne Gardner, who later became his wife. And I went to her office. I said, Joanne, would you take me downstairs and put a few electrodes on me and hook me up so I can play? And she goes, oh, sure. And so she did that. Put me in the chamber, started the system, went upstairs, got involved in her work. I forgot I was there. Later, lunchtime came and she and nine other people piled into Paul Gorman's VW camper van and went out to a 12 course Chinese lunch. And in course 11, she goes, oh my God, <laughs> there's somebody in the chamber. And they all pile back into the VW camper van, go hurling across town, run up the building, rip open the door and interrupt the later stages of a most incredible adventure in which I had that out of body experience. Now, mind you, I had gone into that chamber as a physics major with a very well-trained rational mind. And my only spiritual training had been as a, uh, a Protestant fundamentalist, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, one of the most fundamentalist branches of Lutheranism. And so I was completely unprepared for what I experienced in there. I could probably spell the word meditation, but I had no clue what it was. So I was having out-of-body experience. I was flying around the universe. I was meeting up with just corporate entities. Uh, it was a gas. It was absolutely blissful, more blissful than I could put into words. And then the door is ripped open and there's 10 people standing there and they want to know, well, what happened? And so as I start to tell what happened, you know, fresh from the experience, Paul Gorman, who with his wife in that VW camper van had toured India the summer before, would say, oh, that's a meditation experience. And I'd say something else, oh, that's a meditation experience. And so, mm, I was so high that when I walked around for the next three days, it was my feet didn't touch the ground. I was like 18 inches off the ground. Um, but then pretty soon the summer was over and uh, I had made plans to go back, ride my motorcycle back across the country. I didn't go through Canada this time. I went to Kansas, back to Pittsburgh, and I registered for grad school. Uh, it was in a PhD program. I figured somehow I kind of knew I was going to be working with very weird stuff. For example, we know the brainwaves now of people who see angels. Uh, some people come in, they have it, and I say, do you see angels? Like, oh, how do you know? I've never told anybody. Or one time when I was working with U.S. Army Green Berets, one of the 24 of them had this pattern. And I asked him in a private interview, um, do you talk to beings that other people don't see? And he, like, freaked out and almost tipped over backwards in his chair having a panic attack, like, how do you know? Like, I, mean, I only told my best buddy on pain of death if you would ever tell anybody. And I go, well, I see it in your brainwaves. He said, well, when I'm doing my martial arts training, an old Asian martial arts master shows up and he coaches me. And so I knew I'd be dealing with weird stuff and I wanted a PhD in psychology to somehow get a stamp of approval on my rational mind so I could talk about weird stuff and at least some people might take me seriously. So basically that when you initially had those experiences in, in the chamber, you, you basically were discovering how to raise your alpha brainwaves. 
through I increased an order of magnitude. There's a massive increase. We I now know that if somebody just doubles or triples their initial resting ice closed baseline, they will live in a profoundly different reality. Brainwaves rule. And when you change your brainwaves, you change your personality. Bad things like anxiety, paranoia, schizophrenia, psychasthenia, depression, whew, below average. And good things like friendliness, vigor, clear thinking, uh, IQ, emotional intelligence, creativity go up massively. Increasing creativity from the first week of alpha training at Biosavernaut is 50%. It's a huge increase in creativity. What other stuff is like alpha brainwaves? What other stuff are they responsible for? Well, alpha is a very interesting kind of brainwaves. It's a bridge state between normal waking consciousness and the deeper states. Um, and most people, I mean, uh, this time has been variously referred to by sages as the age of anxiety. Uh, and I can remember 15 years ago, the top five anti-anxiety drugs were selling over half a billion dollars a year in America alone. Well, it turns out that alpha and anxiety are oppositely correlated. When anxiety goes up, alpha goes down. If alpha goes up, anxiety goes down. Uh, every single high anxiety person that I trained in my research studies, when they got their alpha to go even a little bit above their eyes closed resting alpha baseline, they became less than average in anxiety, according to the MMPI, Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the granddaddy of all personality tests. And so, yeah, good things go up with alpha and bad things go down. Now, uh, when people first start, usually people they are more anxious and tense than they would like. So they need to learn how to relax and you know raise alpha. But at the higher levels, when alpha becomes stronger and more nearly continuous, then people go into what are, uh, I would call euphoric high energy states. And in fact, the superconscious state in yoga, which is called samadhi, is characterized by super high alpha all over the head. And the superconscious state in Zen, which is called satori, is characterized by super high alpha all over the head. And so something that in the lower reaches, reduces anxiety, raises creativity and IQ and emotional intelligence, increases friendliness, vigor, clear thinking. At the higher levels, it takes people into profound altered states. And for people who aren't too familiar with neurofeedback training, can you talk a little about, I mean, you, you talked before about how you realized that, that you would kind of stop producing those alpha brainwaves when your logical mind kind of stepped in, into play and you're trying to think, okay, how do I do more of this? <laughs> but tell me how you actually were getting into those deeper alpha states. Like what were you doing while the electrodes were on your head? Like what, what did you find uh, were some of the ways that really increased alpha? Well, now that is a fascinating question. Uh, let me begin by saying there's probably tens of thousands of books that have been written on how to meditate. And you could read all of them and still not be good at meditating because uh, one simple but very deep thing to say is alpha isn't what you think. So anything that you think it is, it isn't. And if you're thinking 
you're not in your best alpha. Let me give you an example. Uh, we had a guy in training, it was his first day, and he brought to mind somebody that he loved. And so instead of thinking about that person, he was washed over by this beautiful, warm feeling of love. And all of his scores went green, which happens when you set a new high on any one of the channels, new high for the day. And so he goes, oh, I know what alpha is, it's love. And in the next two minute epic, he thought about the concept of love. He spelled it backwards and forwards. He translated it into five different languages and all the scores came up white, which means that they had gone down. And he goes, well, wait a minute. I thought I had this figured out. Well, alpha isn't figure outable. It's not even concentrate onable. Let me give you an example. I uh, uh, have an engineering friend who at one point had an opportunity to do some early uh, neurofeedback years ago. And um, he, was, he was complaining that the tones were too loud, the feedback tones were, were so loud because they stopped him from concentrating. I couldn't focus, he said, because the tones were too loud. And I go, well, at BioCyberNode, we ask people to turn up the volume as loud as is comfortable. And we'll do a one minute volume test to see if it's, you know, could you take it louder? If yes, then we turn up another 5%, 10%, run the test again. Can you take more? Yes. If not, then we leave it there. And so here's the, uh, like a simple story. A parent has a teenager. They walk into the teenager's room and the music is blaring. And the parent goes, it's so loud in here, I can't think. Oh. Oh, you mean loud tones in and of themselves suppress logical, analytical, verbal thinking. Okay, well, let's pump up the volume. Because alpha isn't what you think. No, listening to the tones as though your life depended on it. Now that doesn't mean with anxiety, it means with total focus. Also merging with the tones. Now what's really cool about the tones of biosyberneum is that they are unlike tones, people, or sounds people have ever heard in their life before. Almost anything you've heard, whether it's a piece of music, a bird chirping, a car door slamming, a telephone ringing, somebody talking to you, the source is always outside of you. And so you are not the sound. It's the sound is from something else, someone else, and it's coming to you and you are in relationship with that sound source as you are the listener and that is the source. Not so at BioCyberNode, because the tones come from activities deep within your brain. There are pacemaker cells in your thalamus. The left and the right half of the thalamus have tens of thousands of pacemaker cells that run 24-7, urging your brain always be an alpha, be an alpha. And what Shakespeare might call the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune get in the way and you can't respond to that subtle inner voice. And that was why there is an art of meditation where you take yourself to a cave or you know, to a forest or your meditation room, a temple, a mosque, a synagogue, a church, and you sit quietly and you attempt to tune in, quieting the chatter in your mind, but also quieting the external noise. And then you try to tune into that inner signal. Well, that's a time-honored way, but we know in Zen and Japan, the way it's done, it takes between 21 and 40 years of daily practice to get to the point of being rated advanced. And so the BioCyberNode training in a paper I did in 1993 
showed that one week of the alpha training allows ordinary non-meditators to produce the same brainwave changes in a week as in Zen takes 21 to 40 years. That's why we say biosabernat produces the equivalent brainwave changes as 21 to 40 years of Zen. And it is much easier. And instead of devoting those 40 years to what is an extremely arduous path, Ramdas called Zen the steepest path and without any railing. When I trained a Zen master at the end of his training, in somewhat broken English, he said, biocybernaut better than having own Zen master. And I go, Ruho, how can you say that? You're a Zen master. He goes, listen, if you have Zen master, master busy, have many students. You sit, you meditate, you have attainment. Oh, master busy, not notice. Next day, master see you, see you different, give you feedback, one eyebrow go up little. At biocybernaut, feedback all the time. And he repeated, biocybernaut better than having own Zen master. And so the feedback is important. And this feedback comes from you. We reach in with our technology and pick up this tiny microvolt level signal, just a few millionths of a volt. It's very challenging to get the gold disc electrodes on the head in such a way that they will one stay and two continue to record accurately without drawing for the many hours that people are in the biosabinal session. So then we take that signal and we amplify it 100,000 times to make it big enough for our computers to read. And then we break it down the way a quartz prism breaks down a shaft of sunlight into a spectrum. We have the electronic equivalent of a quartz prism, many silicon crystals in the, in the microprocessors. And we break it down into a spectrum where it goes from delta, which would be like red, theta, Schumann, alpha, beta, gamma, which is the gamma, it's more like the blue end of the spectrum. And so then we take those, the brain waves, the alpha, and we use the amplitude of the alpha, which varies moment by moment. We measure it a hundred times a second. So we get absolute accuracy in the ups and downs of the uh, alpha. And we vary a tone frequency, uh, we, the, the steady frequency for each head site, boom, 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 boom. And the pitch at each head site gets louder as the alpha gets bigger. So the alpha gets bigger, the tone gets louder. And so these tones that people are listening to are unlike probably any other tone they've ever heard because it's them. They are listening to an externalization of themselves. And so when we tell people to merge with the tones, feel that you're swimming in a sea of tones or feel that you and the tones are one or you're like Swiss cheese and the tones are pouring through you. Any image that you can have, any feeling you can have where you feel that you and the tones are one will be merging. And then that allows control of the learning process to be handed off from your 20,000 bit per second conscious processor to your 4 billion bit per second unconscious processor. And then you no longer hear the tones as tones, you hear them as music, the melodies of your mind. And then you go tripping in the, the melodies of your mind and the, the learning becomes almost effortless at that point because your, your big brain is now working on it and you're not having to think about it. You're not having to try. What happens when people, so say someone goes to a week of training and then never 
does any more meditation or neurofeedback or, or any sort of spiritual practice ever again, do those changes in the brainwaves stick? And if so, how long? Oh, that is a beautiful, wonderful question. Uh, back when I was still in the university, Carnegie Mellon and then University of California at San Francisco, uh, I was giving personality tests to people, mostly college students I was working with, um, before and after. So be like seven or eight days apart. And at one point I wrote and uh, won and then directed a large federal grant from the National Institute of Mental Health. The grant was entitled Anxiety and Aging Intervention with EEG Alpha Feedback. And in direct answer to your question, I built in uh, six month follow-ups and 12 month follow-ups in the grant. So we could find out did the results last, but there was more than that because all the pilot data had been derived from college age males. And anxiety is higher in women than it is in men at every age. In both men and women, anxiety goes up with age and in women, it goes up faster. And so I figured, well, the most at risk group for anxiety would be older women. And so I selected, along with some college-age males to anchor it to that new, somewhat new protocol that I was going to do for the federal grant, I selected women who were from 60 well up into their 80s and brought them in and, and gave them the training. Now, to give you an idea how profound the personality changes are that I was seeing, you know, from day one to day seven, uh, when I won the federal grant, I was promoted from an assistant research psychologist to an assistant adjunct professor of medical psychology within the August UCSF psychiatry department. Now, shortly after that, the department chair decreed that there would be an annual faculty retreat and each faculty member, me the newest of them, would have to get up on stage and talk for 10 minutes in front of the entire faculty about my research. And so when my turn came, what I chose to do was to show slides of the graphs of the MMPI profiles. And the MMPI has eight clinical scales, anxiety, depression, paranoia, psychopathic deviancy, schizophrenia, uh, and social introversion, uh, uh, various others. It has three lie scales. One detect faking bad, another detect faking good, and another just general malingering. And some of the clinical scales are actually corrected based on whether the person's trying to fake good or fake bad. And so there are these profiles. And this is like mother's milk for the psychiatrists. They you know, look at the MMPIs all day. It's like, you know, it's like an ID card. They can look at somebody's MMPI and basically read their beads. I was very impressed. I'd spent a whole week working uh, very closely with people and then show their MMPIs to a clinical psychologist. And they would tell me things about the people that I had only learned you know, over this intensive work. So I'm showing these slides pre and post, and I'm only halfway through my talk when two senior bearded members of the department have angrily jumped out of their seats and they're shaking their fists and wagging their fingers, shouting me, literally I was shouted off the stage. Now we know the emotional hierarchy at the bottom is apathy, then sadness, depression, then anger, then fear, and then joy. And so whatever, whatever emotion you're feeling that you're blocking is gonna come out at the next one. So the fact that they were angry meant that they were experiencing fear, that this new kid on the block with his 
loopy brainwave technology was somehow going to disrupt their august profession of psychiatry because psychiatrists had never seen that kind of profound change in personality. I've seen people in the 98th and 99th percentile of schizophrenia and depression and anxiety and paranoia and then a week later, they're in the middle of the normal zone. And so this this frightened and then angered the psychiatrist. So that's a little marker just to say these changes are big. They're very profound changes. And back then, the psychiatrists had never heard of such a thing, this profound change. Okay, so I got the same kinds of changes with the older women, even those over 80, that I did with the college-age male. So whoopee, the technology works uh, with older women, even high anxiety older women as well. But then the question was, oh dear, how long does it last? You know, there's all kinds of seminars, in, you know, uh, motivational groups you can go to and it's like rah, rah, rah. And, you know, a day later you still feel good and a week later like, oh, what was I so excited about? So the question, how does it last was very, very important. So uh, we bring them back at six months and we retest them. And to our utter astonishment, their personalities were improved better than they were the day right after the training. Like, how can this happen? We couldn't tell them anything because it was like some of the ladies, it was double blind, so I couldn't, you know, talk to them, but I would listen through a closed door to some of the exit interviews. And I, I remember some of them would say, oh, this has been so wonderful. What can we do to keep it going? And we had to go, we can't say anything for a year, not until after your one year follow-up. We couldn't even say, meditate, nothing. We gave these people nothing by, by protocol. We were not allowed to tell them anything that they could do. And yet six months later, there are profound improvements in the personality structure. So we're kind of puzzling about that. Another six months go by, we bring them back at 12 months and there are further improvements in the personality profiles. Bad things have gone down further and good things have come up. So uh, how do you explain this? People would say, well, uh, what's going on? And I said, well, when you, uh, I, I now have a deeper explanation for it, uh, which I'll give you in a moment. But at the time, I would say, well, when you profoundly change how you see reality, you're going to behave differently. And they go, well, what do you mean? Well, I said, I, I, I like analogies. So I said, well, let's say that you were born colorblind. My father was red, green, colorblind, so I had a lot of personal experience of that when his uh, Ford, light green Ford station wagon got little paint chips, he would do touch-ups with what turned out to be pink paint. And over the years, this green Ford station wagon had pink polka dots all over it because he was red, green, colorblind. And so uh, let's say you're colorblind. And so, but then uh, totally, so you see black and white and shades of gray. But then maybe you have a miracle surgery or you go to Lourdes, you put the sacred water on your eyes and now you see colors. Well, every, every flower that you see in every sunset for months is gonna be a showstopper. Like, oh, wow, come look at this, so pretty. And, uh, but it's also gonna change the way you live. Used to be with you know, being colorblind, you'd go to the store and you'd buy a box of this and a can of that. But now that you see colors, you're drawn by the colors of the fresh fruits and vegetables and you buy and eat a healthier, fresher, more organic diet. And so your biochemistry starts to change internally over time. Or you go to the closet to get dressed and instead of putting on 
clothes that are garish and mismatching because people were like, oh, that's geeky. And uh, now you're color coordinated and you know, people approach you, they find out how nice you are, your circle of friends expands and you, you know, your whole life is over time redone by this one shift in perception. It went from being colorblind to not being colorblind. Well, in the same way, when you open your mind to more of the nature of reality as you do in the alpha training, uh, you see more accurately your own emotions. Like for example, we have increases in emotional intelligence that average 15.8 points. Now, <laughs> the people, the uh, Dr. Charles uh, Bradbury and Janine Greaves, who wrote the book, I have a copy of it here, um, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, we, for years, since about 2015, we have used their online version of their emotional EQ test. And we've shown very large increases in emotional intelligence. They've recently blocked our ability to give the test a week apart because in their world, uh, emotional intelligence can't change in as short a time as a week. So we're now looking for another way to be able to measure EQ because like the psychiatrist who couldn't imagine that personality could change profoundly in a week, uh, emotional intelligence can also change profoundly in a week when you change your brainwaves. Okay, now here's the deep magic, the deep mystery of it. Um, a lot of people are interested in magic or some use the word manifesting. It's a little safer word than magic. You don't have to go so far out into woo-woo in order to talk about manifesting. And so, well, how do you manifest? Well, I've studied Celtic magic and I've also been on the periphery of an hermetic a group of maybe 50 to 100 people. And I learned that both of these traditions have a specific method for doing a work of magic. It's three steps, strong desire, confident expectation, and merging. Now, everybody knows desire. Most people can have a confident expectation. Some can't, some have so much doubt. And of course, doubt is a killer. If you doubt you can do something, well, guess what, you're right, okay? You can't do it if you doubt yourself. Uh, but then what's merging? Uh, yeah, I can desire and I can be confident I'll get what I desire, but what's merging? Well, when I studied Celtic magic, one of my teachers was a thrice master, an archdruid named Robert Elkins. And the only definition I was ever able to get out of him of merging was, he said, merging is when your awareness becomes one with the ground of being. And if you've done it, you go, oh my God, oh yeah, that's so right on. <gasps> If you haven't done it, you go, uh, ground of being? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> and so a simple way to explain to people is uh, the let go, let God. And so you get the desire going, has to be strong. You confidence going to happen. And then you go into what we teach about cybernetics called engaged indifference. Do the very best you can and then completely surrender any attachment to any outcome. Engaged in difference. And that's, I kind of see it. This is me talking. It's not the arch druid. You take your own desire and your own expectation and you upload it so that it becomes the desire of God or the it all or source or the universe or whatever name you want to give to the beyond the beyond, the gate gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhiswaha. And so you have at Biosavranat a scientific technique for applied magic desire, expectation emerging. And usually starting on day three, we uh, introduce something called intentions where we ask people to write out 
in detail all the dimensions of their heart's desire. And then at the start of each enhancement session, uh, the technicians will have the list of all of the intentions. And at the, uh, in the space uh, when the scores are up, which is lengthened to accommodate the longest intention, the technician will read the first person's intention. And then they go into receive mode and all the other trainees and all the other chambers go into alpha and they intend for the accomplishment of that person's intention. And then there's the next scoring period where the next person's intention is at. So we actually teach people how to practice the art of and the science of manifesting. And uh, recently we've introduced people to a marvelous book uh, called Parallel Universes of Self uh, by Frederick Dodson. And in it, he says, identity is synonymous with reality. So when you change your identity, you change your reality. So, well, how does that work? Well, remember I said earlier at BioCybernaut, we teach brainwaves rule. We've actually trademarked that brainwaves rule. When you change your brainwaves, you profoundly change your personality. I've documented this in many published studies. Uh, one was in the one of the two most prestigious general science journals in the world. In, in the UK, it's called Nature. In the US, it's called Science, published by the AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science. And on the seventh day of the seventh month in 1978, I published a paper in there proving that when alpha goes up in high anxiety people, both types of anxiety go down. Well, what are the both types? One, state anxiety, which is transitory of the moment, and trait anxiety, which is a long-term personality trait, which most psychiatrists think is not changeable over the adult lifespan. And yet, when you change your brainwaves, it is. So we teach people how to change their brainwaves, which changes their identity. And then as Dodson points out, Identity is synonymous with reality. So when you change your identity, you change your reality. And this wisdom is actually ancient. You could probably take it back 5,000 years to the Rishis of India, but more recently, a couple hundred years ago, we had uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And he's famous for a quote on commitment. And I can probably reproduce it here. Um, there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That truth is that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man or woman could have dreamed would have come their way. Genius has boldness, power, and magic in it. Begin it. Begin it now. Now, the essence of that is once one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves to raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents, meetings, and material assistance, which no man or woman could have dreamed would have come their way. Well, what is commitment? Commitment is in that moment taking on the identity of the person who's now committing to do whatever is being committed to. And then what's providence? Well, in colonial New England, people referred to God a lot as providence. If you ask modern people, we ask people when I read the commitment quote on day one, what does providence mean to you? People will say, well, God or universe or source or uh, first principle or the it all. And so, 
by changing your identity, by coming a by becoming a committed person, you change your reality. And then providence raises in your favor all these good things and helps you achieve your commitment. So it really is an ancient, well-known art of magic, which we now teach through the science of neurofeedback, because the key in any of this is merging. Remember, desire, expectation, and merging. Both the Celtic and the Hermetic mystical, mystical traditions teach that as a way to do a work of magic. Well, how do you merge? Well, you listen to the feedback tones as though your life depended on. You hear the tones as you and they are one, which they really are. Because the feedback tones of biocybernon are an externalization of a fundamentally deep process that's going on in pacemaker cells deep within your brain in the thalamus. And a part of the brain is so important, many people call it the brain within the brain. And the pacemaker cells that are always urging your surface of your brain, be an alpha, be an alpha. And when you respond to that inner urging aided by the feedback tones and the quiet of the soundproof chambers at Biosabana, it's very easy to merge. And then you raise your alpha, you change your personality, you change your identity and your world changes. Dr. Hart, I wanted to ask you about actually a different brainwave, um, Delta. And I had found that, that you had talked about uh, learning to create waking Delta be, uh, being associated with highly persuasive and great leadership. Can you tell me a little about, I guess, breaking down kind of what, what Delta is and, and then how to, how to go about increasing it and, and just kind of, yeah, tell me a little about Delta. Well, let's start uh, with the neuroscience and the neurologist view of Delta, because most neurologists would freak out if you told them people could have waking Delta. And I have a story that I can tell you about a neurologist at Harvard who freaked out when uh, Gary Schwartz showed him a polygraph with waking Delta. Uh, but uh, that's a little further down in the story. So Delta is uh, zero to four cycles per second. Actually, there's uh, low delta, zero to two, and high delta, two to four. And uh, they can actually have different generators in the brain. Now, uh, delta, as the neurologists know it, occurs in coma, and it incurs in the two deepest stages of sleep, stage three and four. And there is no information transfer from the outside world into the brain during delta. For example, they did a study with college students where they brought them into a sleep lab and they had a tape recorder with lessons that the student wanted to learn, which they put under the bed. And then they had brainwave electrodes on the students. And whenever the student was in Delta, the tape recorder would come on and it would play lessons. The amount of information that they picked up was exactly zero. No information came into the brain in Delta. So, um, and, and that's, that's neurology. Now, um, delta is sometimes seen and theta is sometimes seen around an aggressive, rapidly growing brain tumor. And in fact, pre-CAT uh, scans and MRIs, uh, brainwave recordings to detect delta and theta were the only non-invasive way to detect a brain tumor. And so this was not thought to be very good. And if Delta was there, the person was completely unconscious. And in fact, one of my uh, teachers and later colleagues, Dr. Charles Yeager, 
was a clinical electroencephalographer who at one point in his distinguished career was in charge of a ward in the Veterans Administration Hospital, the VA system. He was in charge of a ward of soldiers who had taken a bullet in the brain in the Korean War. And uh, a soldier who uh, was in Delta would be non-responsive. You could open the eye, you know, and shine a flashlight and the pupil wouldn't, you know, change. They're unresponsive to outside stimulation. And sometimes, because, uh, you know, Dr. Yeager had the VA resources, and he would sometimes run polygraphs continuously, 24 hours a day for weeks on these soldiers. And what he learned was that if a soldier who had spent weeks or months running just pure Delta suddenly broke forth into huge, beautiful alpha all over the head, Dr. Yeager knew that he would die quickly in about 15 minutes. And he had the wisdom to understand that this was the deep brain cutting the cortex loose as the consciousness prepared to exit the body. Now, this gives us some insight into the high alpha states in Satori and Samadhi, where the, the consciousness hold on the body is very tenuous. You have to give up pretty much all attachments in order to have that kind of a very, very high, beautiful alpha that you see in Samadhi and Satori. And so, in fact, uh, the three highest states in yoga are called dharana, dhyana, and samadhi, concentration, meditation, and samadhi. And the, uh, the death is referred to as the mahasamadhi, or the great samadhi, where you go into the state and then you exit the body. And so uh, delta, uh, which Dr. Yeager might see for months unendingly, if it was replaced by high alpha, he knew that that being would leave the body soon. Okay, so that's delta from the neurological point of view. Uh, however, in 1988, I had a man in training who on his third day of training, uh, and by the way, his alpha was unremarkable, nothing to write home to mother about. It was strongest on the occipital, but you know, I'd say pretty weak alpha, not much anywhere else. Suddenly, eight of, six of his eight channels burst forth into very high, very slow delta. When I measured it, it was uh, about one and a half cycles a second, so it's slow delta. And sometimes, uh, and it would run on for maybe 15 seconds on the polygraph. Uh, and it would be preceded by sometimes a jerk or the, uh, like that. If somebody went like that, it would produce muscle artifact briefly for a half a second or so all across the polygraph, all the channels. And then there would be this beautiful delta on six channels, the alpha would, the modest alpha would continue and the other six channels, bilateral, uh, central C3, C4, temporal T3, T4 and frontal F3, F4 would break out into this huge delta. And then it would run 20, 10, 15, 20 seconds. And sometimes there'd be another twitch like that, uh, muscle tension, then he would be back to his regular alpha. And this occurred a bunch of times I'd never seen this before, nor had my technician who'd been with me probably seven years, all through running the federal grant, she was helping me. And so at the end of the day, I'm flipping, the guy's name is John, I'm flipping through the polygraph and I'm pointing like, well, what is this? And he goes, I don't know. And so it was just, I, I learned nothing about what was going on there. He didn't report any unusual experiences or whatever. Now, um, but I said, he leaves, and I say to Marina, we've got to get to the bottom of this. The chamber that he was in had 16 speakers. 
in the Alpha One, you just used the four speakers in front, but there were four speakers on each side wall and four in the back wall. And they used it for shared feedback, which is also a trademark where we put multiple people in the chamber at the same time, and they all literally get on the same wavelength while making beautiful music together. And we have telepathic experiences. I actually did this with two army intelligence officers who uh, one of them, John B. Alexander wrote a book called The Warrior's Edge dedicated a chapter to their two weeks at Biosavernon. He and another army intelligence officer did Alpha One and then they did Alpha One Shared. And he reported they had secret slip between them. They wouldn't let me do shared feedback with them because they had high security clearances and I didn't have any. And so uh, the guy is uh, unresponsive, uh, doesn't tell me anything. So I say to Maureen, we're going to connect his Delta channels C3, C4, T3, T4, F3, F4, to some of these speakers on the sides and back of the room. And if he ever does that again, he's going to get blasted because these signals are uh, eight, 10 times bigger than his alpha. And if we put him in at the same volume, if he ever does that again, it's going boom, 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 boom. And at the end of the day, when I say, well, what was that booming? He's not going to be able to say, I don't know. And so he comes back for day four. And it happens, the chamber's rocking. And so at the end, I'm all excited. At the end of the day, I open the door and I sit down. We didn't have video cameras and this was 1988, but he's got a mic, I've got a mic, we've got a stereo audio uh, uh, recording. And I go, well, what was it? And he goes, well, what was what? And I go, well, when all those tones are going on? He goes, oh, well, that was when the Kundalini was coming. I go, you have Kundalini? Why didn't you tell me? He goes, oh, well, I didn't think you'd know what it was and I didn't think it was that important. And like that. And so that was the first recording ever, uh, scientifically, uh, of a Kundalini recording. And uh, not long after that, I made, uh, I made photos of the polygraph and I presented this at the Winter Brain Conference that Rob Call used to uh, host every year uh, through his company, Future Health. And uh, after my presentation, Gary Schwartz, a very famous psychologist, formerly of Harvard and Yale, and I think he's now at Arizona State University, uh, he came up to me and he's like whispering in my ear. He said, well, you know, Jim, one time when I was at Harvard, a student came in and he was somehow, I couldn't figure it out, but he was very persuasive. And he insisted that I had to measure his brainwaves. The kid was practicing something called Kundalini Yoga. So Gary, who knew his way around Harvard, took him down to the neurology department, put a few electrodes on his head and ran a polygraph recording and saw exactly what I had shown. And Gary was freaked out about it because he knew, scientists know that you cannot have Delta in the waking brainwave. So worried, he took the polygraph recording, the big hunk of paper to one of his buddies in the neurology department and the neurologist freaked out. He, oh my God, don't ever let him do that on university property ever again. Uh, but could I keep the record? I wanna show it to a few of my colleagues. And then Gary said he promptly lost the record, which is what scientists do with anomalous data. And so this waking Delta freaked out a Harvard neurologist so much that he had to lose the data so as not to have it in his face. So, well, well what's the story of now waking Delta? Uh, I said, Gary commented that this student was somehow very persuasive. And I should add parenthetically that I have met over 150 kundalini yoga teachers, I should say so-called kundalini yoga teachers, and not one of them ever had a kundalini experience. So the methods of kundalini yoga 
are not, I mean, if you have a recipe for making um, meringue, you take your egg yolks, I mean, your egg whites, and you take your beater or your electric beater, and you beat them and you get meringue. I mean, it's like pretty automatic. But 150 Kundalini Yoga teachers, none of them have ever had the Kundalini experience. Uh, I have, so I know what it's like. It's unforgettable. Uh, but let's talk to the persuasive aspect. Um, this man that was there, John, in 1988, he was a bird-like man, self-effacing. In a crowd of two, you wouldn't notice them. Uh, and yet I find out he's on a three-year paid leave of absence from IBM. Now, how is this possible? What is this bird-like man uh, who doesn't seem to have any spine or background, uh, backbone? What does he have so badly that IBM is willing to pay him a three-year leave of absence and he didn't have to promise to come back? And so I, this is now fascinating. So I want to get into his story. Well, turns out he was a mid-level clerk in Marseille, France, working for IBM. And one hot summer day, he was caught in one of those horrific traffic jams where the French blow their horns continuously until their batteries run down. And then they get out and they swear at each other in French and have fistfights and whatever. Well, poor John, little meek bird-like John is caught in this traffic jam. The heat, the cacophony, the din. In all of this, he had his first ever out-of-body experience. And he's flying around as a disembodied intelligence over the crowd, swooping down, somehow intervening and stopping fights. And then the tow trucks came and over to the edges and gradually over six hours, you know, pulled the cars away and broke the traffic jam. Well, the next day, John's back at work at IBM. But remember, he's had an out-of-body experience. And I don't know the details of how the difference in him was recognized by his managers at IBM. But uh, now he's got a new job, much more important instead of he's no longer a mid-level clerk. To give you an idea what John's job is, let me give you the following problem for IBM. Let's say IBM wants to open a new plant in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia to make a certain product line. Well, the first thing they do is they send a highly paid team of experts there to scout. They wanna find properties that are near population centers, near transportation lines, uh, where there's power and water and all those necessary things. And then they come up with a selection of plots of land that could possibly be bought. Then they leave and they hand over this list of potential candidate sites to a second group of highly paid individuals who come in and they negotiate with the landowners, maybe pay bribes under the table to politicians or whatever they have to do, and they buy a piece of land. Then they leave and another highly paid team of experts come in and they negotiate with construction firms to build uh, the building that IBM wants. And some of them stay behind to monitor the construction so that there's no cheating. So that where they've called for quarter inch steel, the contractor doesn't substitute 16th inch steel or quarter inch or eighth inch steel. And so um, at the end of that process, the building is starting to come into shape. Another highly paid team of experts comes from IBM and they put ads in the paper and they start interviewing people for workers. And toward the end of that process, a smaller group of people come and they hire the managers. And at the end of this long and expensive project, which is now over budget and time and way over budget and money, there's the plant and the workers come in and the raw materials go in 
and crunch, 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 and ka-ching, and the products go out the door and IBM makes money. Well, what, I don't know how this happened, but IBM found they, did, they could dispense with all those highly paid teams of experts and just send John. <laughs> and John would do it all, and he would do it way under budget and time and way under budget and money, because people couldn't cheat when John asked them to do something. And so uh, at one point, John goes to his manager and says, I'm quitting. <laughs> and the manager goes, you can't quit. We need you. He goes, no, I'm quitting. Manager goes, well, you probably just need a leave of absence. We'll give you a leave of absence for a year. No, I'm quitting. Uh, two years. No, I'm quitting. Uh, three years. I'm sorry, I'm quitting. Uh, manager says, no, desperate. He goes, well, I'll give you a three-year leave of absence, and you don't have to sign a contract promising to come back. John goes, okay. And that's the condition he was in when he came for training. He was on a three-year paid leave of absence from IBM and no promise to go back. Okay, so, but he's a small bird-like man, self-effacing, you know, no evidence of any personal power. And the only thing I noticed about him was he was at Delta. Okay, so remember, we're trying to figure out how people become persuasive. Well, I didn't actually put it together until maybe a year or two later. And now Foster Gamble and I are partners and we've created a company called Mind Center. And they're using the BioCyberNode technology in a high-end center with purple carpets, um, 12,100 square feet in Palo Alto, California. And uh, the... Uh, we started doing theta trainings. For, for many years, I'd been unwilling to do theta uh, because, well, to give you an example, why was I unwilling to do theta for the general public? I said, Foster, if you want me to do theta, obviously you'll have to do it first. He goes, oh, I'd love to. I said, now the thing is, you'll have to let me follow you home every night after your theta training. He goes, well, why is that? Well, you'll see. So day one is fine. I follow him home to Woodside. Day two is fine. I follow him home to one side. Day three, he's uh, out in traffic and he comes to a red light and uh, he stops and the light turns green and he continues to sit there and I'm right behind him. The light uh, turns green. He doesn't go. Turns red again uh, and it turns green again and he continues to sit there. turns red. And when it turned green the next time, then he went. Now, when he got home, when he got home safely, I told him what had happened. He was incredulous because he had no idea that he had spaced out what we took to doing with leading trainings in this high-end center, their little manicured, uh, little uh, grassy hills with uh, uh, golfing green grass on them and little duck ponds. Um, we would confiscate the Theta trainees' keys. And at the end of the day, we'd ask them to take off their shoes and socks and walk in the cool, wet grass. And then they'd come in and I'd look into their eyes and if their pupils, pupils were still dilated, I'd send them out for more walking in the grass. And only when their pupils had contracted would I give them their keys and let them drive home. Now, our protocols for Theta now are much longer. So when people come out of the chambers here at BioCyberNaut or in Germany in our BioCyberNaut training there, uh, they go into debriefing, which may go hours. And then there's a meal, and then we spend another hour or two going over the polygraphs and the graphs. So people are back in their bodies. But at the time, uh, 
you know, we were using these careful protocols. Well, we had a theta train going on. We had four chambers and only three were filled. So I said to the technicians, put some electrodes on me because I want to lie in the theta chair in chamber four and I want to do theta while the people are doing enhancement. And I did this. And I don't know if it's the first, second or third day I was doing it, but I had my first ever Kundalini awakening. This massive energy came up my spine, pushed everything that was me, thoughts, feelings, even my identity to the far outer edge. If you can visualize a high pressure fire hose, fire, fireman takes three strong men to hold the fire hose nozzle. They let go, flap, 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 it swaps through them like that. The energy was, all there was, it was rushing through me and it pushed even my identity to the far outer edge. Uh, and the polygraph, fortunately, the techs were on it and they flipped the polygraph into high speed. Normally we run at 10 millimeters a second. They flipped it to 60 millimeters per second. Papers like flying out. So we could actually measure the frequency of the waves. And I was producing 1.25 Hertz Delta. And the amplitude was on our scale, it was over 30,000. Now we rarely see somebody whose alpha is over 3000. And at 15 years into doing my work, I look back and only 40% of the people had ever broken 1000 in their alpha scores. And so here this massive Kundalini Delta was pouring out of my head at over 30,000. So it's a lot of energy. One sometimes wonders how brain tissue can sustain such voltages, but it did. And so I, I can't tell you how I got through the interview. It was the last day of the training or drove home to my home in San Francisco. I had two roommates there both of whom love books and records. And I promised one of them, Tom, that the next day we would go to lunch at the Hong Kong restaurant, our favorite Chinese restaurant on Church Street near Market. It was a dangerous place for me to go because a few doors down was the Aardvark used bookstore. And uh, I had had since childhood a reading habit. When I was in second grade, my father, I'd had measles, which made me nearsighted. And my father was worried about my eyesight. So he made a strict rule that I couldn't read more than two dozen books per week. And so I would bring home two dozen books from the library. He would count them to make sure there were not more than 24. But of course I would cheat after school. I would go to the library and read unauthorized books. So I had this reading habit, but now I was running Mind Center with Foster. I was running BioCyberNot and I was running a large university research grant and I had no time. I was working 18 hours a day and then trying to go to the gym for a few hours and I had no time for reading. So buying books had become something that really, I really shouldn't do. Uh, so, but Tom says, well, you know, you could just look. I go, well, maybe I could just buy one book. So I go with him and uh, the books aren't priced, but they have barcodes. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at this one and looking at that one. Pretty soon my arms are bulging with books. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll buy one. So I call out to Tom and say, well, Tom, I, I, I can't carry any more books. We have to check out. So I go up and dump the books on the counter, intending to tell the clerk, please tell me the prices because I'm not going to buy any. Maybe I'll buy one. And so Tom is standing there. He engages me in conversation. I get distracted. So I forget to tell the clerk. And he's running a scanner. And then he interrupts me and he says, well, that'll be, and he mentions some dollar figure. And I, I'm kind of startled. And I go, well, well, I wasn't planning to buy any of them. And then the shiver runs through my body. And I say, well, but if you give them all to me for X and I throw out some number, I said, I'll buy all of them. And a shiver runs through the clerk. And he says, okay, I give him my card. He piles his two big shopping bags and I walk out the door and I'm standing. Tom checks out and he comes to me, he goes, how did you do that? 
And I go, what? How did you do that, Tom? I don't know what you're talking about. He said, that was the owner. He never gives anybody any discount. I saw you. You got all those books for less than the price of the cheapest book. How did you do that? Oh, my God. Now I understand why John was able to do for IBM what he was able to do and why the people couldn't cheat on their contracts and why he could do it under budget and time and money. I also knew why he was leaving IBM and why there was no chance he would go back because he had become conscious. He had become aware. In fact, when he first called me, he was uh, in the company of a Zen master, a Baker Roshi, who became Zen master when Suzuki Roshi died. I had their brainwaves and I saw in, in uh, Suzuki Roshi brainwave patterns that I later came to understand as the basis of halos. And that pattern was seen in only one of the 30 monks that Suzuki Roshi brought for brainwave measurement, not feedback, just measurement. And that happened to be Dick Baker, who upon the conscious passing with 45 people in the room, Suzuki Roshi gave transmission to Dick Baker, who became Baker Roshi, uh, which created a minor scandal in the Zen community. But from my point of view, it was the only vessel capable of taking what Suzuki Roshi was about to drop when he left his body. That's a story for another time. But anyway, there was John hanging out with Dick Baker, Baker Roshi. And so he was obviously on a more conscious course than putting up new buildings and things for IBM. And so, but he had become aware that he was using his powers, which I'm sure he didn't understand, to compel dishonest people to be honest. And it is a fundamental rule of ethics that it is evil to override somebody else's will even if that's overriding their will to be bad, to be naughty, to be evil. And so there was no way John was ever going to go back to IBM. But I realized that Delta is a force to be reckoned with. Now, remember, I had a degree in physics. And so one of the early things you learn in physics is that light can be viewed as either a particle called a photon, or it can be viewed as a wave. And depending on how you do a study, with light, it'll either show up as a particle or a wave. Well, the Italian physicist de Broglier uh, was able to show that bigger things than photons also can be described as a wave. I mean, Einstein's equation equals mc squared. Matter equals energy multiplied by the speed of light squared. So there is a wave, a de Broglie wave associated with an electron, a proton, uh, an atom, a molecule. And so ultimately, even bulk matter can be described as a collection of waves of energy, de Broglie waves. And so uh, you probably know uh, what noise canceling earphones are, where you can be in, you know, next to a jackhammer and be listening to a flute playing on your headphones because the noises coming from the outside are being met with a 180 degree out of phase exact waveform of what's coming in, so it cancels it. And so you can take a loud noise and reduce it to subjectively zero by broadcasting whatever is 180 degrees out of phase. Well, if you think of bulk matter as having a wave packet energy associated with it, you simply broadcast whatever is 180 degrees out and that piece of matter disappears. 
And so I, as a physicist, look at a section of the universe, whether it's a square inch, I mean, cubic inch, or a cubic meter, or a cubic kilometer, or a cubic parsec. I look at it as able to be described by a quantum mechanical probability and energy density function, where the position, the momentum of all the particles are described and the energy of everything is known. Well, if you broadcast a frequency that's 180 degrees out from all that, it simply disappears. And so the idea of being able to fundamentally and profoundly alter reality by projecting or altering or interfering constructively and destructively with that quantum mechanical probability of the energy density function allows someone to do works of magic. It also allows those who have delta to override the free will of others. Now, at one point I had, when I was still in California at my center in Santa Clara on Martin Avenue, I had a man come to me for training who showed big delta, I mean big, his alpha was about 3,000, his delta was about 3,000, and they were like simultaneous. It wasn't one and then the other. They were occurring simultaneously. And at the end of the day, I'm going over his polygraph, and I say, are you able to influence other people? And he freaked out. And uh, it took a while to calm him down. And then he told his story. He had been a high-ranking minister in the French government. And um, because of his position... He became aware of plots of the secret government, which we would now call the deep state. And he was able to intervene and cause them to fail. Well, because they were evil. They were evil plots, 11 of them in a row. Well, these people are not used to having their plans, as the Scottish poet might say, gang after glee um, or to fail. And so when 11 consecutive plots had gone astray, they called a high-level review, beginning with listing the names of all people who knew anything about each one of the 11 projects. Well, this man's name was the only name that appeared on all 11 lists. So they knew they had their man. And so with two hired assassins and a spokesman, they barged their way into his office in the French government and said, we're on to you and we're going to kill you, except there's one way that you can live. And that is you help us. You have obvious powers and you help us. And so he went deep and he gathered his delta. And then he came back and he said, no, there's a, another option, which is I will resign from government and you and then with the full force of delta and you will leave me alone. And they timidly left his office and he resigned from government. And shortly after that, he came to California for this training. Now, because of his obvious high ethics, we only do delta trainings now for people who have demonstrated through multiple alpha and multiple theta trainings, a high degree of ethical cleansing because we don't want to create any Darth Vader's. We don't want to empower people who have anger, fear, or sadness that's going to be consciously or unconsciously projected on others. For example, if somebody has a commitment to greed as a business strategy, we would never train somebody like that in Delta. Okay, And so because of his obvious high ethics, I invited him to do a Delta training. And let me tell you what he did. It was so amazing. He went right up to the limit of influence without overriding somebody's will. In his mind, in Delta, he went out into the world and encountered you know, evil people living in darkness. Like, for example, a big fat Mexican drug lord 
waddling down an alley on his way to give an order to have 13 Mexican policemen beheaded because they're messing with his operation. And while he's doing that, a little kitty runs out from behind a rain barrel. Well, if he doesn't alter his stride, he's going to step on with his 300 pounds and crush the kitty to death. If he makes a little effort to shorten or lengthen his stride, he can spare the kitty's life. Well, what this man did was he recognized that everybody has light within them. It's not their light, it's the light. But he realized these people living in darkness could not see their own light. So he adjusted the frequency of the light a little so people could see their own light. Now, if the drug dealer crushes the kitty to death, he'll see his light dim. It's not painful to just get feedback, see his light dim. If he makes a little effort and spares the kitty's life, he'll see his, life, his light brighten. And so what he's done is he's given the person a conscience. Doesn't compel them to follow their conscience, but he's giving them feedback. And I was in awe of his, his wisdom, uh, his ability to use the power of Delta for good without transgressing on this number one rule, which is never override the will of another human being. So yes, Delta is very good for manifesting and it's very good for doing good. But you have to be very careful. Uh, one time in California, I had an elderly couple come from Arizona. They were both on their second marriage and the woman had had a very tragic life. Uh, she had Delta waves. Uh, and, uh, but her life had been very tragic and uh, she said she didn't know what happiness was. I had no idea. But some years earlier, she had become interested in psychic healing. And so she uh, attended courses, she'd read books. And one night she heard one of her friends, lady friends was sick. So she went into meditation and she sent the woman healing energy. Well, that woman was that night rushed to the hospital and nearly died. A week or two later, the same thing happened. Another one of her friends was not feeling well and she went into her meditation and sent the woman healing energy. And the woman was rushed to the hospital and nearly died. When it happened the third time, she saw the pattern. She goes, I guess maybe I better stop sending energy to people. She had Delta and she had so much pain that when she would connect to the person, even though at a superficial level, the, you know, the one-tenth of the iceberg that's in the consciousness, that was intending to send healing, the nine-tenths of her consciousness, which was in pain and anger and bitterness, would pour that through the channel of Delta that she established with the person and the person nearly died. And so this is why we're very careful at Biosabinone, not to empower people with Delta unless they have demonstrated very uh, uh, conclusively and repeatedly that they have done enough ethical cleansing so that they're not going to be having even unconscious anger, fear or sadness go out on that broadcast of Delta waves. Dr. Hart, these are all fascinating stories and experiences that, that uh, you're sharing with, with this technology. Um, we're coming up onto the end of the show, but for people who want to find out more about your work or about BioCyberNot, uh, bio where would you direct them to? Uh, well, uh, you can go to the website, www.biocybernot.com, and that's B I O C Y B E R. N-A-U-T.com. Rhymes with astronaut. And a biocybernaut is to inner space what an astronaut is to outer space. Also, 
uh, as a special gift for your listeners, when they go to the website, if they uh, type in www.biocybernaut.com, do a slash bonus, and they can get a free copy of my book, uh, The Art of Smart Thinking. So it's my gift to you and your listeners. Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Hart. And yeah, I highly recommend that you guys go check that out. Dr. Hart is clearly, I mean, you've been at the top of, of just this, this biofeedback and neurofeedback world. Um, and, and I've heard your name quite a few times and it's, uh, it was a pleasure to finally get a chance to, to actually uh, sit down and, and talk with you. Um, for those listeners who enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel for Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro, and also subscribe on whatever audio platform that you listen to these podcasts on. Uh, if you want to DM us, uh, feel free to contact me directly, Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro on Instagram or Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro at gmail.com. Dr. Hart, again, I wanted to really thank you for coming on the show today and thank you for that bonus. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. It's a delight to hang out with you. Thank you very much.